0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Oh,
1: yeah. The innocence of a child is undeniable.
0: <laughs> I tell you, that kid never stopped smiling.
1: So it's hard to comprehend when a little boy is murdered.
2: A son was shot in the head. A three-year-old baby. But
1: the tragedy surrounding the death of Major Harris didn't end when police discovered his body. My plan is to bury him by his mother. It's what happened next.
0: We had the casket picked out, we had the gravesite dug, we had his name put on the cards, everything was planned.
1: That has magnified his grandparents' grief.
0: We just didn't understand why he would do that, how anybody could do that.
1: And exposed a dark history that has frayed their family ties. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my colleague, Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda.
0: Hey, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday, November 4th. And it's been three weeks since police discovered the body of a 25-year-old woman on the 2600 block of North 37th Street. They eventually identified her as Mallory Munzenberger of Onalaska, Wisconsin. And that's when family told police her three-year-old boy was missing. And... For anyone who hasn't been following this story, it it kicked off a major search that had people, in some cases, quite literally holding their breath.
1: And most of us were in the Milwaukee area. If you were around here, most of us were first first encountered this whole situation when our phones went off with an Amber Alert, Uh, obviously goes to our mobile phones, goes to our televisions, radios, all sorts of things. But this all started when the Amber Alert kicked off. But what's really interesting and unusual about this case is that the discovery of Mallory Mallory Munzenberger's body occurred two days before the Amber Alert, and that's because they didn't identify her right away. In fact, her family lives in La Crosse, and it took police a couple of days to identify her, to reach the family, and when they did, that's when they discovered there was also a child with her, and that child was now missing, that child, three-year-old Major Harris.
0: And how did that end up, Brian?
1: Well, again, for those who haven't been following it, for those who have, you know that there was a week-long search that was kicked off that ultimately led to citizens, civilians being called in to help canvas neighborhoods in Milwaukee near where they thought the boy's body might be found. Um, There were people who were taken into custody who police thought might know something about the boy's location. And during that search process, uh, a number of things happened. First... The day after the Amber Alert went out, police identified a person of interest as 20-year-old Jaheem Harris. We don't know how they identified him. That hasn't come out yet. Uh, but they did locate him and surround a house in Milwaukee. Uh, he was inside. And then police, as they approached that house, heard gunshots. Not clear how many gunshots, but they heard gunshots. And, and uh, Jaheem Harris, they say, had died by suicide. Um the boy was still missing. And so was the vehicle that had been identified in the Amber Alert. It was the day after that that police found the vehicle. And inside the vehicle, they found bloodstains and I believe a missing car seat. So at that point, they knew something bad had probably happened also to Major Harris. But there was still no location. There was still hope being held out by the community that Major would be found alive. There were flyers going up. There was a a call for all kinds of help from the community to try to locate this boy. Um, But unfortunately, as it turned out, his body was ultimately discovered and he was dead. He had been shot in the head.
0: This is something that has been top of mind for so many people in our viewing area. Brian, the story you did on Monday night picked up after Major's body had been found. So what led you to start digging into this a little bit more? Well,
1: during the search process, when uh, I believe it was a few days into things, um, there was a, a person who appeared on television on all the the television stations in front of the camera by the name of Carlton Harris. Turns out he's Major Harris's father. And Carlton Harris had been living, he says in West Virginia heard about the the death of his son, the search for his son, and came to Wisconsin to assist in that search. Carlton Harris uh, was critical of police for the way they were handling that search, uh, for the information they were giving him. And uh, ultimately, when his son's body was found, he stepped in front of the cameras again and really railed on police, saying that this had been an epic fail. He felt that they had not searched hard enough. He raised issues of racial disparity, saying that they would, you know they would search harder or do a better job looking for a white white child. Um, and uh, and he said that, you know, he wanted to see justice done for his son, not only uh, involving his concerns about about police, but for whoever had actually committed the murders of Mallory Munzenberger and and his son Major Harris. Um, Carlton Harris made those comments. Um, but one other thing he said, stood out to Mallory's parents. Probably the most important thing that stood out to Mallory's parents at that point, who, by the way, during the search for their grandson, they were having to arrange for and, and have a funeral for and bury their daughter. So this was an incredibly turbulent and traumatic time for Mallory's parents, Paul and Mary Munzenberger, who are all the way across the state in lacrosse. And they hear from other family members who see Carlton Harris on TV saying that he plans to have Major Harris buried with his mother in Lacrosse, um, or wherever, with, Mallory. with Mallory or wherever uh, Mallory's family would like that to be done. And, and when they heard that, they had a sense of relief that they were at least going to be laid to rest together. It was something that was very important to them. It's important to understand a little bit of background here is that Paul and Mary Munzenberger had spent a lot of time ...with three-year-old Major. In fact, Major's middle name is Paul, named for his grandfather. Um, So they had spent a lot of time with him. Uh, They had spent a lot of time, obviously, with their daughter, with Major around. They didn't spend much time at all with Carlton because he was no longer involved in Mallory's life. And they say... He was not involved at all in Major's life. He had been ordered by a court uh, that established paternity to pay child support. They say he wasn't paying child support and that while he did have some contact with Major, they say he was not an involved father. So obviously there's some real tension between the sort of sides of the family. But when they see on TV him declare that his intentions are to have Major buried with Mallory or they hear family members tell them that, obviously for them, that's a huge sense of relief.
0: But it got a lot more complicated than that pretty quickly.
1: It sure did. So he had made that proclamation on television, live television, that, that those were his intentions. And uh, apparently, and this is, I, I have not spoken to the medical examiner's office in Milwaukee to confirm this, uh, but the family in La Crosse, say they spoke to the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's office who would performed the autopsy who said that, in fact, Carlton Harris had released Major's body so that he could be taken to La Crosse for burial. So the Munzenberger's funeral home came to Milwaukee, retrieved Major Harris's remains, transported him all the way across the state to La Crosse to the family's funeral home. And they say within just a few minutes of his arrival, the funeral home called them to say plans have changed. He's changed his mind. He wants to bury Major in Madison. They had a gravesite picked out. They had the the gravesite dug. They had a casket selected. They were prepared to say goodbye to their grandson and to have him buried with his mother. And they say plans suddenly changed. And as you can imagine, for them, that was devastating. Uh, they are still struggling with that. And they held out hope up until the day Major was in fact buried in Madison that that his father, Carlton, would change his mind, but he did not.
0: And this is the kind of story that uh, on the surface, maybe the news wouldn't get involved in. What made you say, okay, we we have to tell people what happened here? Well, in part
1: because there was such a public declaration of these intentions and now you have i mean we talked about you heard at the outset of this podcast I and mean, you and i have talked about this uh, uh, amanda it's one thing to hear that a three-year-old boy was murdered but there's something about hearing that innocent laugh a happy child who was enjoying time in a swing with his grandparents you hear that and as a parent it hits you probably as as a human being it hits you this was an innocent child Say whatever you will about his parents and the decisions they made in their life and what led up to these brutal, horrific murders.
0: Which we don't fully know yet.
1: Which we don't know yet. Whatever it was, we know that three-year-old boy did nothing wrong. And yet, even after his discovery, even after his death, he's still somehow being pulled apart by his family, as his body is being shipped all over the state here and there, and there's a battle over his remains. So that alone got me interested. But there's another piece of this that was sort of sitting out there, and and it's a challenging one. And we've talked about this, and we're going to talk about it today here on this podcast. It's a journalistically challenging one, because Major, Major Harris had a mom. Major Harris had a father. His father, Carlton Harris, and his mother, Mallory Munzenberger, were no longer together. That's not unusual. That happens an awful lot in this world, in this country, in this city. Uh, But Carlton Harris also has a long criminal record, and in particular, a few pending open criminal cases, two of them involving domestic violence, and one of those cases specifically involving Mallory Munzenberger, Major's mother. So it's an open case. There are arrest warrants out for Carlton Harris because he hasn't showed up for court in in Sock County, where he's accused of felony domestic violence with a totally different victim, and in La Crosse County, where he is accused of abusing Munzenberger in 2019, that case still pending. So there are warrants for his arrest, and yet there he is on television, in front of cameras, in front of police, talking all about his Uh, concerns about how police handled the investigation, his plans for what to do with his son's remains. And there were questions being raised by some of our viewers, by members of the public and by Mallory Munzenberger's family in the cross saying, why aren't police doing anything about these warrants? And we hadn't talked about that yet because the tricky part here is. Obviously, Carlton Harris has just lost his son as well. And whatever you might think of his involvement in his son's life, he's a grieving father. Or at the very least, there are certainly some who believe maybe some of that was put on, was an act. I'm not suggesting that. It's something that members of the Munzenberger family have suggested. But let's imagine that he is, in fact, grieving as much as anyone else for his son to go on television and start talking about his criminal record Uh, raises some real questions about, is that appropriate? Is that connected? Is that important? Is that necessary? And so for many days, it's something really the media didn't touch. And I think there was some public pressure mounting to say, why aren't you talking about this? Because if you look up Carlton Harris on CCAP, public records, it's clear that he had these open warrants. So there was a real challenging discussion that we had internally at Fox 6 News about when do we, or do we at all talk about his record is it relevant? Does it matter? And uh, and there were some there's some real arguments I think on both sides of
0: that. And uh, take us through the arguments for both sides. It's something we had a meeting about in our newsroom, and uh, quite frankly, I think that discussion was healthy.
1: Well, and I think if you separate, I think the key piece here is the connection. Well, two things: one that there are open warrants, not this isn't just a his past. We're not just talking about someone who's trying to get away from his past or who's paid his debts to society for past offenses. This is someone with existing open warrants for existing offenses um, who hasn't shown up and who has warrants out for his arrest. But more importantly, one of those cases actually involved one of the victims, the mother, Mallory Munzenberger, and would Potentially explain and does seem to explain some of the frayed family ties here, the tensions between the two sides of the family. You can imagine Paul and Mary Munzenberger wanting their daughter to be buried with their grandson um, and not really wanting to have anything to do with the man who's accused of abusing their daughter. You can imagine, on the other hand, that maybe Carlton Harris doesn't feel particularly welcome from that side of the family because of these things. And maybe decided at the last minute he would rather have Major Harris's body buried closer to his relatives in Madison, even though our, our understanding is Carlton Harris doesn't plan to live in Madison. He's going back to West Virginia, but his family members still live there. So that's... Criminal history and the existing cases helps to explain that tension. So on the one hand, this is different from what we might normally consider with someone's background in a case like this. But the other argument is, is it relevant to bring all of this up? Is it fair to someone who is, in fact, grieving the loss of a child? No matter what your background is, if you've lost a child... Do you want people talking about things that you've done wrong and bringing them up and 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 discussing them publicly when you're just trying to process that grief?
0: And I mean, another thing that we discussed was we don't want to leave anyone with the wrong implication, because if you just talk about, um, you know, he's accused of abusing Mallory and... There are still questions surrounding how she died. We don't want someone to walk away thinking that we're telling them police say he's a suspect when police have said, at, at least at last check, that he is not a suspect. And they've been pretty definitive about that.
1: Yeah, police have said uh, since early on that they believe Jaheem Clark, the person who they initially searched for and surrounded in a house who then shot himself, died by suicide. Police say they still today say they believe Jaheem Clark is the person who killed Mallory Munzenberger and the person who killed Major Harris. But they haven't concluded their investigation. They haven't charged anyone else in connection to the investigation, though arrests had been made. That investigation is still ongoing. The fact that it's ongoing, the fact that they haven't acted on the warrants, the fact that we now know there was a domestic violence connection between one of the victims and Carlton Harris, Major's father, would naturally raise questions about, well, wait a minute, did he have some sort of involvement in this? And I want to be clear here as we were on the air. Police have told us, no, Carlton Harris is not a suspect. And that doesn't change the fact that this has been a compounded tragedy for Mallory's family to have thought they were going to be able to bury their grandson with their daughter, with his mother, only to find at the last moment that plans had changed. So uh, there is a, a very difficult after the fact uh, tragedy, a family drama that's taking place here that's perfectly relevant. And they're questioning why police haven't arrested Carlton when he keeps standing in front of cameras. He just gave another interview a couple of days ago, to a Madison television station, he and his family gave a private invitation to one of the stations in Madison to come to a balloon release at uh, at Major's gravesite, um, and the family is wondering why weren't police around to pick him up then, and so they're asking those natural questions. I have asked Madison police since that was obviously uh, evidence that that Major or that Carlton Harris is still in. The area and protect and particularly is in Dane County, uh, where one of his warrants is is outstanding. Uh, it raises the question about our police planning to act on any of those warrants? I asked Madison police that question yesterday. I received a response from a Madison police public information officer who said he was checking into that and would get back to me. Uh, I say yesterday, that was Wednesday. I have not heard back. So we don't know what their intentions are right now and whether police are grappling with some of the same concerns. What are the optics of arresting a grieving father? Um, And does that change the fact that their job is to enforce the law? So I think they may be grappling with some of the same challenges that we did in determining if or when it was appropriate to talk about some of these things on the air.
0: One of the things I wrestle with whenever we're deciding which information we report and which information we don't. I want to be clear, this isn't This isn't your local news station trying to censor anything. It's that we every day sift through an onslaught of information and we make decisions about what is important to the story, what is not, what is ethical to present, in which way do we present it, what impression are people left after we present it. And that's why issues like this, Can lead to a lot of discussions in our newsroom. And the thing I always wrestle with is if I don't report this information and give it the context I know it needs, and it's already available for anyone else to look up, am I leaving someone with the ability to look that up without the context that I know I can provide and without the clarity that I know I can provide as a journalist? I'd imagine that weighed on you as you were putting this story together.
1: Well, it was a fascinating discussion that we had internally. And, and it's actually something that makes me really proud of Fox 6 News uh, and News Director Jim Wilson, that he pulled a team of people together to say, let's hash this out, let's hear all perspectives. And we weren't all in agreement. There were some differing viewpoints on when, if or how we should present this information. Um, Ultimately, we went forward, and I think that's because there is a pretty strong case to be made that the crimes that are pending are directly connected to and relevant to this situation. They have an impact on this situation. And I think especially that since the family in La Crosse has raised some of these questions to not present those while giving here's an interesting point is while giving Carlton Harris. The platform he's had to criticize police, to say what he thinks of the investigation. If we then didn't present the families uh, in Lacrosse their concerns about his own run-ins with police or his pending cases or his pending domestic violence charge against their daughter, um, I think that would be uh, irresponsible and unfair of us to to withhold that information. And you're right, Amanda, it's very important that if people are going to find that stuff out, that we give them the context, the context we know as much as we can. And, and I think that's what we attempted to do with the story. And I think based on the response we've gotten to the story, I think we we handled that well, because this could be done in a way that uh, is misleading, that could falsely or wrongly have given the impression that Carlton Harris was uh, in some way involved in these deaths. And we haven't been given that information. In fact, police have said the opposite.
0: This reminds me of a case. The the facts of the case were different, but some of the discussions in our newsroom were the same. Um when I worked in Toledo, Ohio, um and it was a missing and then later found dead a uh, little girl. It was the baby Elena case, uh, as it was known in our market. And she there were some family members b- before when she was still missing um there were some family members who were frequently on TV and would go would start saying things as though they were fact even though they weren't and then later police would dispute them or they would start um you know specifically criticizing police for the search and then things kind of continued to go on and some reporters started to get just Kind of a weird feeling, you know. I remember doing a live shot with an update about the case, and a family member pulled up and um, started screaming at me that we needed to put their GoFundMe information on the air because not enough people were donating, and we needed to. And it, you know, you walk away going, okay, what's what's going on here? And we had a lot of conversations in our newsroom about. How do we present this family? It's not our job to just you know decide whether someone's grief is legitimate. But at the same time, sometimes in these stories, it's very easy to present someone as look at this person who did absolutely nothing wrong and they've potentially lost a family member. And You also want to make sure you're not airing things that haven't been fact-checked. So this was when the big thing was put every raw interview on the website, right, so people can can go to it. And I remember getting in a pretty heated debate with uh, our our digital manager who wanted to put uh, the entire raw interview uh, up on our website. And I said, he made some questionable claims here, and I don't think we can just put that up there. Without, without vetting it. And her argument was, these are his words, not ours, but we have a responsibility even when they're someone else's words. And so it turned out that the, um, the mother of the baby girl and her boyfriend, uh, they were arrested and they ended up Uh, taking an Alford plea deal where basically they don't admit wrongdoing, but they say they think there's enough evidence to to convict them of guilt um, in the death of that little girl. And then some of the statements that the family had been making really came back up and we had to go back and take another look at it. And I say this because these are the things that newsrooms struggle with all the time is when does someone's criminal past become relevant, Um, and there are times when it's not, there are times when it is, when how closely are we vetting the information we get, even when it comes from grieving families, and who do we give a platform, and how much latitude do we give them with that platform? These are the questions we should be asking with everything, but especially in big cases like this, that's what comes up.
1: Well, and I do think there is a tendency often to uh, follow a path of least resistance, which is to capitulate to whatever side or whatever party might be the loudest and and likely to make the most noise. And that's the wrong reason to make a journalistic decision. And I think that's why discussions like the one we had with the story are so healthy, because you can really air out, why are we doing this? Is there a good reason? Make your case. Um, And and if that and if the case isn't solid, if it falls apart, then it helps with that decision. But in this case, the case was pretty clear. There was a direct connection. Uh, It was information that the public could find on their own without context. We could give it context. And it's something that the family was raising. I mean, in the end, and this is I want to I want to bring it all back to this because the podcast starts with it. And I think it's where this ends. What happened to Mallory Munzenberger is tragic. But at the very least, you can say she's an adult and she made some decisions. Some have criticized her on our own Facebook page for saying, well, maybe she got herself in a situation that put her and her child at risk. I I wouldn't put that kind of a blame on the victim of domestic violence, on the victim of a murder. But certainly she's an adult at the very least who had the ability to make choices. Major Harris is a three-year-old boy. He had no choice in any of this. And he certainly had no choice in the battle over his remains after his death. It's tragic and it's heartbreaking. And in the end, I think that's where I don't think there are many viewers who can look at Major Harris and not think one way or another. This has been just a horrific tragedy for that little boy.
0: Well, and after all of that, after you have this three-year-old boy's body getting ping-ponged around the state— It sounds like what really upset the Munzenberger family was uh, they were saying Major's father didn't show up for the funeral.
1: After all of the, the, yeah, right, the the change of heart to have him uh, buried in Madison instead of in La Crosse, uh, we are told, the family was told that he did not show up. Now, I want to be clear that Mary and Paul Munzenberger didn't go to Madison for Major's funeral. They didn't go because they said they didn't feel safe. There had been uh, some animosity between the two sides, some screaming on the phone, Uh, They say they were yelled at and cussed at by uh, Carlton Harris. Again, those are their words. I didn't hear these phone calls. I tried to reach out to Carlton Harris for this story. And after all of the uh, interviews he's given, uh, I was unable to reach him. The phone number that he had been using that our other uh, some of our general assignment reporters had used to reach him previously. Um, Initially, I got a single beep and I left a voicemail. The next time I called, it was disconnected. Um, I reached out to try to find an attorney. He has three open criminal cases, only one of which has been assigned a public defender, and that public defender had withdrawn earlier this year when uh, when Carlton didn't show up for a, a hearing. So I, I reached out to that public defender and said, if you have a way to contact him, please let him know we're doing this story. I didn't hear anything back. So we tried to reach Carlton for this, and, and we didn't get any word. So, so I don't have Carlton's side of this, but... Marion Paul Munzenberger told me that they didn't go, but other family members from lacrosse did attend the funeral in Madison. They sent back video and photos of Major's casket. Um, and they are the ones who said, after all of that, Carlton isn't even here. Um, if he was, they didn't see him. And uh, I have not heard otherwise. So it does raise that question well, why? Why would you go through all of that, not let the grandparents have their grandson buried with with his mother in La Crosse and, and then not even appear at, at the funeral. Paul Munzenberger is the one who raised the question in in my interview with him that, well, he thinks it's because of his warrants. And that's yet another reason that the criminal uh, history and the current criminal charges are relevant, because if, in fact, he went through all of that and then didn't show up at the funeral because he was afraid he might be Arrested. I am told there were squad cars from three different depo- uh, departments outside the funeral. They might have just been there for security. They might have been there to make sure there wasn't any trouble. But if he saw the squad cars, perhaps he saw them and decided they're here for me. I can't go in. We don't know. We can only speculate because he did. He, You know, I wasn't able to reach him. But uh, it definitely raises a question of why go through all of that. And certainly for the Munzenberger family, it has only added to their grief. <music> And that sound means it is time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we answer a question we've not prepared for, and here to answer us, uh, to answer us. Well, she's going to answer it too, but here to ask us that question we have not prepared for is our executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hey, Smitty.
2: Friends, uh, I, before we go off the record, I would like to go on the record. And apologize to Brian Polson. Um If you've listened wow. to this, I know. <laughs> Write it down. Um,
1: this is recorded, you know.
2: <laughs> so, a couple podcasts ago, we had a very in depth conversation about favorite Halloween candy. And, Brian, we all you kinda, like Snickers. Dude. Yeah, dude, see, so I, I've always loved Snickers. I've never not loved them, but I think the fact that you spoke of them so highly, I was like, eh, there's other candy bars now. It's not, you know, I don't know. Anyway, so fast forward to October 31st, where my kids go trick or treating, and there's just, I mean, in the last. Four days, I've probably had about 78 fun size Snicker bars. And every <laughs> single time I'm like, these are delicious. It's the perfect amount of peanuts, nougat, caramel, chocolate. It's delightful. So, I, every Can we get Eminem
1: <laughs> Mars to sponsor the podcast? Thought, because you know that what? right there, yeah. what you just said, that right there yeah. is an ad.
2: So hire me. But I'm just like, uh, or sponsor the podcast, number one. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I just wanted to say that, I mean, you are correct, that it literally is a far superior candy bar to so many other things. I pick it over Twix, over Kit Kat, over Milky Way, over Three Musketeers for sure, because Three Musketeers no. is trash. Okay. Anyway, this I didn't want to dig, dig back into candy, but I just wanted to say that you are correct.
0: I would like to go on record and say I do not owe Brian Poulsen an <laughs> apology. Save it. We can't give him two apologies in one podcast. I do not enjoy Snickers. And of course, my kid. we had a couple houses give out full-size candy bars, and they let you choose. And of course, my two-year-old picked the Snickers every time.
1: Should we just add a new segment here that's called Candy Talk? <laughs> yes. Because it seems like this so- comes up <laughs> each week now. And, and by the way... Last, before we get to our actual question, the last question I want to know on this is, Sarah, how many of the 78 candy bars did it take before you made this determination?
2: <laughs> I was about one. <laughs> and then I, every okay. time I thought, I was like, dang, Brian Paulson, man. <laughs> Just, anyway. Okay. Today's question. This one at first I saw it and I was like, I don't know. But then it kind of got me thinking. And the responses that I saw to it on Twitter made me laugh. And so I'm like, here, here's hoping. Okay. The question for today: what was your first email address? Ooh. Think back all the way. So like I'll I'll start with like our family used to have an email address way back. Like when we first got a computer and the internet was like dial up and we had AOL and we had those free discs that would like come with the newspaper of like 20 free hours of AOL. Anyway, so our first email address was like, I think it was like our gang four because there were four members in our family at AOL. My first personal email though, my name is Sarah Smith. So as you can imagine, coming up with an email of Sarah Smith, is difficult. Uh, You end up as one of those like first name, 74 numbers. And then anyway. So my first email address was Smithers with two Ms. One at AOL.com. Smithers one. It was
1: AOL. It was AOL. So I'm going to, I'm going to predate you on that. I'm going to go back beyond AOL because when I was at the university of Missouri in the 1990s, uh, mid nineties, So it's not that, I mean, in some ways it's not that long ago. It's the mid nineties, right? I mean, this was like grunge era. This was Pearl (laughs) Jam and it was Nirvana. And yet my first email address, sort of email, was uh, the the internet didn't exist as we know it now, um, but there was something called Usenet and student communications all went through Usenet and there were discussion boards and things like that and your Usenet address was connected to your student number. And I don't remember my student number, but it was like a six digit number. And I think the letter S was at the beginning of it or something like that. So it was like, you know, S915234 at whatever, uh, at usenet.net. Or I don't even know if there was a, I don't even know if there were dot whatever's at that point. I just know that it was sort of like the closest thing I had to an email address. Um, And I used that to communicate with professors at times and and I, I still remember you know that some of the computers we used at that time were still the sort of like you know monochromatic um, you know uh, you go and mm-hmm. there's the, the the blinking square cursor kind of thing and I would print out uh, things from uh, you know for, for paper assignments you do we do research and you print them out on those dot matrix printers tear that you had to off, tear yeah. the little <laughs> edges off of um, so I, I mean, if you want to call that an email address, I guess that's I guess that was my first email address.
0: My first email address was a bit. My parents were very strict about internet usage, so it was a big deal when I first got an email address. Like I, I had a secret MySpace account at one point, and my parents found it, and it was like <laughs> I had run someone over Shut with it a car. Down. Like that was the, the secret the reaction. MySpace
1: account. There,
0: there wasn't even Contraband. anything bad on it. It was just I had a MySpace and I didn't want them to know about it. But it was like it was the worst thing I could have done. So my first email address was Amanda plus five because I have five brothers at Comcast dot net. That was mine. And it was at I mean, our our family computer was like smack dab in the middle of the kitchen. So it's looking back, I think. It should be considered kind of impressive that I managed to have a secret MySpace account because with so many (laughs) people walking by, the only computer in the house. I'm kind of surprised
1: you did because we know you to be such a rule follower that you were sneaking (laughs) around with a secret MySpace account.
0: No, so I have two conflicting parts of my personality. I am a rule follower, but I also love challenging authority. So it makes for some interesting investigative reports and probably also made um, me a very interesting child to raise um, because both those things. So I thought it was a stupid rule.
1: You know, there's a funny thing here about picking email addresses and then sort of not thinking about what you're advertising (laughs) about yourself down the road because you just become used to the communication. I was working in Kansas City a number of years ago. I mean, I've been at Fox 6 now in Milwaukee for 17 years. So this is 20 years ago. But we had a unit called the problem solvers. And so our, our job was, it, I didn't come up with this, this was something that was sort of heaped upon us that you're now henceforth the problem solvers. And, uh, and we did some good stuff, don't get me wrong, but there were certain elements where for a while we were supposed to turn a story a day, which meant solve a problem every day. Well, you couldn't solve really big problems in a day. So we ended up at times scrambling to find what can I do today that solves a problem for someone. And, and one day I had received what seemed like, well, maybe this will be sort of cute and human interesty. It was a uh, a middle school girl who was very frustrated that she had an uncommon first name. And therefore, when she went to get personalized things, yes. like, you know, when you go to like souvenir license shops license and plates, they have yeah, all the, like, her name yep. was never her name was never in those things. And she said, I just wanted to get like my friend. I wanted personalized pencils. And I thought, you know what? This is a whole different kind of problem we could solve, and maybe we'll have a little bit of fun with it. And uh, and so we went out to go interview uh, th- this, you know, innocent little seventh grade or eighth grade girl who just wants her name on some pencils. Now, we arrived to interview her, and 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 I'm and I'm glad that no one knows or can look back at the story because I wouldn't want to out this individual. But we arrived, and she was wearing what can best be described as a hooters outfit. <laughs> This is a child. And so I was immediately uncomfortable with where this idea is going (laughs) south fast. But then I needed some other photos to use for the story. So I asked if she could send some photos and she sent me photos from an email address That was something along, I don't remember it exactly, but it was something along the lines of Juicy Girl something or other. And the two combined, I just thought. Send help. (laughs) That's, but at this point I'm on deadline and we have to do a story. So I, I made, I told the photographer, you shoot this as tight as you can. Um, and and we're which go- means and-
0: that you're not showing her outfit. And
1: we found we've actually got the Ticonderoga Pencil Company to agree that they would make up some personalized pencils for this girl which made her exceedingly happy and I was roundly criticized thank goodness there was no social media but we got so much feedback on that story that this is what you think is news when there's you know think of all the issues that must have been going on at that time and I was just trying to solve a problem (laughs) man (laughs) but but it was that but 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 I tell the story because when I saw the email address I just thought you're in seventh or eighth grade this is going to follow you get you're, you you know, just get a regular email address, you know.
2: Literally anything else.
1: Miss Hardworker at <laughs> aol.com, G- whatever it might be. Else. But we, do you guys not? Do you not see those kinds of things, though? Yes. We get these emails, and someone will have a very serious, yes. I want you to do a story about corruption mm-hmm. at the such-and-such such courthouse or agency, and then the email comes from, you know. Uh, yeah, right. I don't even want to say. It'll be well, something we, completely inappropriate. And we, go, we, oh. we
0: get a lot of those where it's like the end, they make up an email to submit something to us, and it's just it's yeah. too vulgar to – Read yeah. on air show anywhere
2: comes on resumes too. Resumes are the worst. Like, don't send me a yes. personal email that's like, you know, not going to get myself in any trouble. But yeah, it's like, please hire hmm. me for some. No, nope, sorry.
1: If you're trying, if you're yes. trying to get a serious job and you send your resume from <laughs> Susie Hotpants at Hotmail dot com, that's a problem.
0: Hot pants with a Z. <laughs> Susie Hot Pants is going to send you a very angry email now.
1: I think somehow you you have to turn this into a wrap up now
0: (laughs) okay let me try and record that wrap up (laughs) okay if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on open record an issue you think we should investigate a question for our off the record segment maybe you'd like some personalized pencils <laughs> Please send us an email. You can send your email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators at fox.com.
1: As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible: producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. That's a very important part. We want you to subscribe, tell your friends. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson for Amanda St. Hilaire. We'll be back again next week.